Hello and welcome to Not To Get Political, the podcast where we look at the world of politics and hope to remain unscathed. Today I'm joined by Brian Rennick. Brian is a people and culture expert and has travelled the world learning about different cultures and customs. Today he's here to talk about China and some of the misconceptions and misreporting about the country. Brian, thank you so much for coming on. Not at all, it's my pleasure Harry. So how did you get into doing what you do? It's a very long story because of my white hair, as you can tell, um, but it started off in the, in the British Army. I was involved in postings overseas in Libya, and I realised that there was an awful lot that families of people, ne- they needed a lot of help. Um, so it sort of tugged at my heartstrings. When I left the army, eventually I thought, well, what can I do as a career? So I joined up the human resources profession. So basically, my background is a human resources professional. That's interesting. HR is one of those, um, it's an interesting, so how long were you in the military for? Two years. Two years. National service. National service. And um, so I guess that kind of, uh, so um, talk to me a bit more about that. What was your experience of being in the military? Uh, oh, it was it was quite interesting. There, there was so many stories I can tell you about that. It was um, a very different military from what it is today. Um, I was very lucky. I was in Libya next door to one of the oldest and most famous Roman towns in the Roman Empire, so I spent a lot of time there. The military bit was rather strange because here was I, a 19-year-old officer commanding men who had been in the army for 20 or 30 years and knew much more about it all than I did. But, but uh, because of the, the then class system, that was why I was an officer. So I learned a lot from that. I learned a lot from that about uh, how every individual is, is, is genuine and different in their own way. So it doesn't really matter what level of society you are. There is always something of interest and something to engage one. And so I think that's probably where it all started. So how did sort of China come into the, uh, into the mix? Okay, I was working in Bahrain uh, as an expat. I was doing a personal job for one of Bahrain's biggest organisations. Uh, it came to an end because I localised myself. We put a local into my job. A, they didn't have headhunting then, but a recruitment consultant rang me up then and said, look, Brian, there's a really interesting job in Hong Kong. Would you like it? I said, yes. Long story, got there and started in Hong Kong in 1981. And what was your like first ex- experiences like in Hong Kong? What like, stood out to you when you moved there? How different society was, how different the culture was, um, but also, I, and this is with hindsight, uh, how colonial it was. It was 100% colonial. Everybody, all the top people were British, top people in every company were British, British laws, British custom, the Cantonese language hardly figured anywhere. And I won't say the British were racist towards the Cantonese, but they were patronising, I think is the right word. Is that not a form of racism, though? Um, it depends. You can be patronising without being racist, I think. <laughs> but yeah. in this particular case, it possibly was, because it's very, very similar, if you look around the world at other, other colonies. The, the British colonial administration, going right back to the early the years of the 20th century, was one of, we are helping you guys. You car guys can't manage on your own. We're here to help you. And that was their justification for being there. I guess when you see in, let's like, say, the context of India, and uh, you look at basically how the British plundered the country and completely, d- basically divided it all up, and it's like, yeah, but we gave you a railway. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, yeah, so thank us. And it's a, like, a, a lot yeah, of other things. Yeah. Like, and we gave you democracy, and we gave you so on and so forth. Yes, uh, that is very true. So, um, we see Hong Kong... China, yes. that's been in the news quite a bit. Um, yes. It's actually, say, with um, a lot of uh, people who have moved from Hong Kong to the UK, mm-hmm. it's one of the only safe and legal routes there are for uh, refugees in, in this case. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about that? Yes. The relationship between China and Hong Kong. Yes. Why is it the way that it is? Okay. 
again, it's a very long story, but what one has to remember is that Britain basically stole, if I can use that word, Hong Kong from China in 1849, 1839. And they, they stole it because they defeated China in what were known as the Opium Wars. Now, you may know this, but Opium was the one way that the British could get silver. They needed silver to buy tea and various other things. The one way they could get um, silver in China was by selling opium. And, of course, that produced some very bad effects in China. It wasn't helped because the ruling dynasty, the Qins, were were very weak and very bad. But in the end, having defeated China in the wars, the Brits got a huge number of concessions, concessions to operate in various cities. They owned parts of Shanghai, for example. Um, but amongst the other things, they, they took over Hong Kong. And the idea was that Hong Kong would be on a lease. Uh, not Hong Kong, the island was always granted, but the main part of Hong Kong, the Kowloon Peninsula, was on a lease. And that lease expired in 1997. And that was always on the cards. So uh, during the whole of the 50s and 60s and 70s, when there was turbulence in China, Hong Kong took in lots of refugees, escaping the Cultural Revolution and that kind of stuff. So, of course, Hong Kong was populated then by a lot of people who had left China because they didn't like it. Not only that, but Hong Kong then became extremely prosperous and extremely successful at a time when the mainland wasn't. So a lot of Hong Kong people looked down on China and they looked down on Chinese people as being kind of backward and you know, innocent. And to be honest, it was probably true in those days. So, um, however, the political forces came and Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping basically sat down together, or the foreign offices did, to be honest, and they negotiated a settlement, which was that Hong Kong would main, remain the same for 50 years, same institutions, separate from China and so on and so forth, and then we'd see what happened after that. So, broadly speaking, that's what happened. Now, unfortunately, during the course of that time, the agreement was written in 1984, and literally at the end of that period, before 1997, John Major appointed Chris Patton as the governor of Hong Kong. And he had the brief, and this has only just come out now, by the way, um, previously when we, we thought it was all Chris Patton, but it wasn't. John Major insisted that Chris Patton tried to introduce a measure of democracy into Hong Kong. Um, this was wrong. This was actually breaking the agreement that they'd signed only 20 years before, saying things were going to go the same. The Chinese absolutely hated it, but there were elements in Hong Kong that absolutely loved it. So the history of the pro-democracy protests and that kind of thing started because of the arrival of Chris Patton, who wanted to introduce more democracy. It's kind of ironic because there was no democracy in any British colony uh, at yeah. all uh, until, until they left. There seems to be a running theme with like Western states going into countries that they consider to be less than them, implementing democracy in it, not going too well. Yeah, it is true. I, I wrote a piece on my blog called Modern Missionaries, which, which you should read, which describes, in fact, the way in which the press, the media, politics works today. It's very similar to colonial uh, enterprises. You go out there, you convince the heathens of Christianity and whatever else it is. We're trying to do the same thing. Our, our sort of predilection with human rights and all this kind of stuff, we want to export to the rest of the world because we think it's right. The rest of the world says, well, hang on a minute, actually, that's not quite the yeah. way we think, not quite the way we work. Yeah, I've, I've definitely noticed that a lot. Um, I remember when my, my, um, my dad spent a lot of time in France when he was um, growing up and... Um, 
he uh, bumped into these uh, American uh, uh, students that were in France to learn French. The reason they were learning French was so they could go to uh, French-speaking African countries to spread the word of Christ. Yes. Um, and there does seem to be that sort of element with colonialism and religion sort of coming hand in hand, uh, going over to different countries and sort of imposing it on already established cultures. It, it, you know, on the one hand, you can say it's a genuine enthusiasm, a genuine belief that one is morally correct. You know, um, democracy, human rights, all this kind of stuff is the modern religion. Um, now, it may be a modern religion, but it's only a modern religion to the West. It's not a modern religion to everybody else who has a different view of these. Yeah. So um, you spent a lot of time in China. Yes. And there's a quote that I know that you've said to me quite a bit. Could you repeat it to us about China? <laughs> yes. Well, it's about writing about China. Uh, there is a, a well-known saying that if you're in China for a week, you can write a book. If you stay in China for a year, you can perhaps write an essay. After a year, you can't write anything at all. And why is that? It's because you learn so much. One of the things about China that everybody kind of forgets is that a it's huge not just billions of people but the land area is, is absolutely huge secondly it's incredibly regional there are different cuisines different languages different cultures all over china you've got the west which is sort of isolated it's um, speaks a different language it's got different foods you've got shanghai which has always been a commercial city you've got beijing which has always been sort of kind of intellectual and political and and all over china you've got different bits the south of china is completely different for example hong kong Guangzhou, completely different from the rest of China. So the more you do there, the, the more you learn and the more difficult it is. So when people call me uh, an expert on China, I am not, I really am not, as nobody could possibly be an expert on China. I've done a lot of studying, I've lived there a lot, I re research a lot, I've read the philosophers, I've done a lot of stuff, but I'm not an expert. Where's your favourite, where, where's like your favourite place in China? That's a very good question, and I, I don't really think I have an answer because they're all favourite, but because they're all so different, they're sort of favourite for different reasons. There are some very beautiful parts of China. There are some very ugly parts of China. Uh, the cities are amazing, but there are some pretty ugly cities. Um, there are lots of tourist spots. Uh, you could talk about the Great Wall. You can talk about the Low River Valley. You can talk about all sorts of places. But I would like to go to... And by definition, that's a kind of favourite place. I would like to spend more time in the West because that is really a mountainous, um, very jungly kind of area. And I'd love to spend some time there, which I have not done yet. Maybe we could, you could uh, do that soon. Maybe I can do that soon. So let's, obviously China has been heavily in the news for basically the last three years, yes. uh, mainly due to, to COVID-19. Yes. Um, and the response uh, from, the, from the Chinese government dealing with COVID-19 and the way that it affected the rest of the world. Um, with that came a lot of misconceptions and a lot of misinformation. What was the biggest uh, misconception about China during that period? It's interesting that you talk about that period. I think that period highlighted a lot of trends that were already in existence. Um, literally, through the years, honestly, Harry, China has been a kind of uh, terror for, for the West. I mean, it goes way, way, way back, hundreds and hundreds of years, because it is so big, so powerful. It used to be the most, the biggest country in the world economically. And so that's always terrified people. Uh, the fact was, it was far away. However, in the last 40 or 50 years, China has started to produce things for the rest of the world. They've started to get rich. So most of American debt, for example, is owned by China. Uh, the, if you buy almost anything, you'll find that it's made in China. So the world is dependent upon China. And when you're dependent on things, when you're beholden to people, 
in a funny way that makes human beings resentful. And so when they had a stick to beat China with, i.e. COVID, oh, it started, they deported it, exported it to the world, of course, it, it, it inflamed what was already there. And that was politically managed as well. There is some very interesting evidence. I've done some public opinion research. Uh, in the 2015 years, uh, Cameron and the Chinese government got very, very close and there was a very good relationship. Uh, that all broke down at a time when Trump was finding the trade balances all wrong. So Trump started a whole campaign to, to denigrate China. And that, of course, got picked up politically all around the world. And so with COVID on top, it was wonderful. Then you had the pro-democracy protests in Hong Kong and so on. So there were a lot of sticks to beat China with that came up quite well. Recently. I definitely remember that. I remember during COVID, for example, there was this uh, very sort of popular myth that it uh, was started by uh, someone scranning a bat. Um, and that's sort of where it came from. And then there was a lot of um, sort of insults about Chinese food and, and customs. Um, the, the rise of xenophobic hate crime here in, in the UK between uh, March 2020 to uh, I think June 2020, it went up by 21%, um, which when you look at the figures from the year before, shows the, the massive increase that went on there. A lot of the time it wasn't even towards people who were Chinese. No. And I definitely, for me personally, I realized how normalized the racism was towards anyone who appeared to be Chinese. Yeah. Um, I remember my learning support mentor um, when I was at university saying to me, she was actively avoiding all the Asian looking students mm. because she didn't want to catch COVID. Yeah. Never saw her again after that. Um, I remember at work, a lot of comments that were made, derogatory comments made about Southeast Asian colleagues. And it was kind of, you wouldn't say this about anyone else, but because of the current political climate, you think that that's acceptable to say and that people will agree with you. Why do you think that is? I think, why is it? I think, there are, okay, let, let, let's, let's go into this a little bit more deeply. There are several reasons for this. And by the way, yes, you're quite right. Uh, I remember being told about some, some film, it turned out to be a complete spoof, of, of gas being sprayed in Chinese streets and people just falling over and sort of dying. And that was alleged to be the kind of way in which China controlled its people. I mean, it's such complete nonsense. Why does it happen? I think it happens because underlying it, there is a again this feeling of not exactly inferiority, but this feeling that China is hardworking, dedicated, successful. Uh, therefore, if they make a mistake, you jump on that mistake. So that's the first thing. The second thing is because the Chinese people, on the whole, are remarkably tolerant. Um, they are used to discipline. They're used to being kind of told what to do. And they don't get agitated in the same way that, shall we say, some other races who are equally well affected do. I think that's part of it. I think the third part is that people were genuinely scared of the disease. And when you're scared of the disease, you need to blame somebody. And it was convenient to blame somebody that was far away, successful, tough, rich, blah, blah, blah. You know, you go on. So I think there's a whole host of things. But one mustn't forget the fact that the Chinese are on the whole, remarkably tolerant. It's interesting that you mentioned tolerance because in the last few years, there's been a lot of stump stuff coming about uh, with the Uyghur, with the Uyghurs mm -hmm. and the persecution of the Uyghur people. How does that tolerance sort of blend in? How does that work? Well, first of all, can we just say alleged yeah. abuse? Um, you know, I've not been there. Well, we've seen there's the footage that there's the uh, drone footage of Uyghurs in those camps mm -hmm. getting put into trains, very sort of reminiscent of 1930s, 40s Germany. Mm -hmm. So and reminiscent, by the way, of 1940s America, yeah. who interned the yeah. Japanese and did exactly the same thing. 
Um, so I don't know, again, I really can't say what the situation is. I just don't know. My point is that nobody knows, and you can take drone footage till you're blue in the face, and you can interpret this and you can interpret that. Um, I don't know what's going on. All I would say is this. There is clearly something going on. I, I can't yeah. possibly deny that. My, my point is that the same trends are everywhere. People are worried about terrorism. It so happens that a very few, some Muslims are terrorists. There are lots of other terrorists, but some Muslims are. Now, when you look at China's situation, on the western side of China, which is the only land border they've got, I think, I, I remember counting it up, it's something like seven or eight countries border the west of China. Of those countries, all of them are Muslim, and some of them are known to harbour terrorists, and some of them actually do conduct terrorist operations from there. Just tell people's geography, what countries are well, bordering. You've got places like Afghanistan, you've got Tajikistan, you've got Kurdistan, you've got, I can't remember all of them. Yeah, yeah, okay, several, yeah, yeah, okay. right, that gives you, that'll give people all, all an idea, way, yeah. All the way down. So if you were China, and you had a sea border on one side, and you had a northern border which was basically frozen with, with Russia, whom you're sort of half a friend, um, then where are you going to be worried? You're going to be worried about the land borders. And therefore, if you have a group of population that identifies with people the other side of the border, and the people the other side of the border have some terrorist tendencies, then of course you're going to be worried. And indeed, uh, if you were looking at it from a Chinese point of view, um, some of the Uyghurs are potentially terrorists, and there have been some terrorist acts in that part of the world. I'm not justifying anything. Clearly, China probably goes further than the West would in order to do something about it. But when you look around at what, what, what the West has done, um, I mean, uh, attacking Iraq, bombing Syria, bombing Libya. I mean, it, it, it Guantanamo is, Bay in, in the US. All of that kind of stuff. It is pretty dire, quite frankly. And how anybody can point a finger at anybody else for doing bad things when, when these things go on. So The Spider-Man meme. Have you seen that Spider-Man meme? Where yeah, there's like yeah. three of them all pointing at yeah. each other? It is kind of, yeah. Exactly. Pot calling the kettle black. So I can't defend anything. I can't say it happens or doesn't happen. I just don't know. My point is... Nobody knows. Everybody's judging from media reports and drone footage and so on, and that really isn't the right way to judge. So how do you think is the right way to the get, get to the bottom of it? Go there. Go there. Now, in fact, you might not get permission to yeah, go there. Yeah, well, that's the thing. So with, uh, I think the UN, when they've been able to sort of, sort of get in, yeah. it's a very... Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. It's like um, it's like when Ofsted, you yeah. know, when Ofsted visits schools and the schools like put all the best students yeah. uh, in the classes, all the naughty kids are put in timeout or, or isolation, what it's called timeout when I was at school. Yeah. Um, it's very like, um, look, this is what it's like. All happy, all happy, all great. Well, and, and the reason for that is, I don't know, I saw a, um, a BBC programme on North Korea not very long ago. And the reporter, who was quite a well-known reporter, um, eventually got chucked out of North Korea. And the reason he got chucked out was because he kept asking difficult questions. He did what a reporter in the West always does. He tried to sort of point out things that were wrong and so on. And they basically shut him up and then they chucked him out. Now, who's at fault there? Is it the reporter who is so insensitive that he can't see that he's being disruptive? Could he not have learned a lot more about things by being less disruptive, number one? Number two, and this is where you come back to culture, and it's incredibly important, this, the culture of Asian societies, it goes without saying, is completely different from the culture of Western. We're brought up in this chaotic, democratic thing where everybody can do whatever they like, and if there's disorder and chaos, it's rather a good thing rather than a bad thing. China particularly, but many of the Southeast Asian races, believe in order and discipline. Life doesn't work properly unless there is order. It's the most important thing. So if you get a reporter that comes along to, to, to the Uyghur country and says, oh, you've done this wrong, you've done that wrong, or why do you do that, why do you do that? 
what is the point? What's to be achieved? You're just trying to make score political points off, off China and it's not going to do anybody any good. Well, obviously the critics will say that it's uh, people highlighting the persecution towards a, uh, a minority, would, would you not say? Um, that is one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is the Chinese are doing their best to re-educate people who could otherwise become criminals. And it's very similar to the programs that the UK have, except they're not done in camps, um, to try and de-terrorise people who are terrorists. It's interesting that you mention about with Prevent, which is the scheme that you're referring to, Rishi Sunak during his leadership campaign uh, actually wanted to extend it to include people who are critical of Britain, yeah. which is obviously quite a broad range, because that could range from uh, academics who are critical of the British Empire, yeah. uh, critical of British uh, foreign policy and domestic policy. Um, but with that scheme, it's disproportionately targeted uh, Muslim men in particular. Yeah. When actually, when you look at the evidence out at the moment, it's uh, actually sort of white supremacy that is seen as the biggest threat uh, when it, in terms of domestic terrorism to the UK. Yeah. And this is one of the interesting things, I think, Harry, too. Um, you know, we've all got Achilles heels. We've all got things that we're inconsistent about. Um, we like the idea of order and discipline and um, preventing terrorism and that kind of thing. Um, and different people see different things, different terrorists, different potential terrorists. It depends where you are. Um, I, I think one of the main things that I'd like to emphasize is the uh, cultural difference again between China particularly and West. And it comes back to philosophy. And if you read the amount of philosophy that I read, and I know you do, it's absolutely wonderful because you can see the derivations of a whole culture and the whole thought process. And Confucius and the other famous Chinese philosophers held the view that discipline was important. Sons obeyed their fathers. Sons did what their fathers told them. And this top-down society still exists in China today. This is why the government is the way it is. It didn't matter whether you were an emperor, communist, or Mao Zedong, whatever it is, it's top-down leadership. And that is what they like. Why do they like it? Because, on the whole, it produces order and without order, nothing can be successful. You can't feed people in the old days, um, and you can't make the products that you need to make to keep people rich today. The West, on the other hand, you go back to Plato, you go back to Socrates. They believed in sort of freedom of the individual. For a start, there were tiny, tiny states. Even in the early days, China had millions of people, so you had to govern millions of people. In Athens and Greece, it was little, tiny city-states. So, of course, you can afford to be more liberal and a little bit more chaotic. In fact, one of the quotes that I like from um, Plato is the chaos of democracy. He, he relishes the chaos of democracy. That simply would not do in a country of 1.5 billion people. It's as simple as that. So as you can see in almost any of the places where democracy has come in badly and come in too fast, it ends up being chaotic. And I doubt if anybody makes progress from that chaos. But I guess people will say in terms of uh, China and this sort of, uh, sort of quite authoritarian, sort of dogmatic way of, of doing things, it, limited, it limits uh, sort of freedom of speech and expression. Um, we saw during the uh, the lockdown restrictions that were quite heavily imposed on China, uh, towards the end, I think last year, the Chinese people had had enough. They were, you know, breaking the, the rules that were in place. They were saying enough is enough. We're not going to tolerate this anymore. People's uh, tolerance will only go so far, will it not? Yeah, absolutely. And that's a very good example you quoted, and this is one I quote very often. Um, the Chinese government is, in fact, incredibly closely in touch with its people, and it's in many respects more democratic than the democratic system is. Um, 
And, and what this means is that they will react to something that they need to. But I come back to you with just one question. You know, which is more important to anybody, um, having the freedom to express an idea, which after all is just that, it's just an idea, or eating? Which is more important? That's true. But if you're using your free, say, say here in, in, in the UK, for example, if you're using your freedom of speech and expression to highlight that in this country, for example, people are being forced into choosing between heating or feeding their households, which is a choice in a G7 country is not a decision, is not a choice that anyone should be making, no. regardless of their of their uh, their political class or Absolutely. social class. Absolutely. One could say that Britain has gone back to the sort of, I don't know, the Victorian era where they were literally starting. Well, they, they've highlighted, I think, um, the ONS or the OBR, they've said that on, this is, these are the, the lowest stand, living standards on record since yeah. records began yeah. back in the 1940s. Right. And you would think the, uh, where, how far the UK has come sort of post-war, the, uh, the introduction of the welfare state, the NHS, um, and now look at the state that the, that the UK is in. It's like we've gone backwards. Um, Let's contrast this with China, where they've lifted over a billion people out of literally poverty in the last 40 years. I mean, that is the most extraordinary record. And that's been done by hard work, discipline, and central organization. This thing that Democrats for some reason or other don't like, central control enables you to do this things. This idea of like freedom and liberty, we saw it a lot during COVID, you know, people not wanting to wear a face mask, yeah. uh, not wanting to do their duty because of uh, the sort of the, con the misconceptions from China yeah. uh, regarding the face mask, <clears throat> and particularly during the SARS crisis in 2004, yeah. um, where basically, you know, wearing the mask, which was seen as an act of, uh, sort of civil duty, I suppose, yes. if, uh, if that's a word or phrase. Um, you know, I look after myself, I look after you in, in turn. Exactly. And here in the UK, because of those sort of misconceptions people had about face masks, it was like, I don't want to wear that. No. You know. It's the difference between an individual-based society and a community-based society. That's part, part of it. And, and the other thing, as I say, is going back to the traditions. The, these traditions are very, very long established in China. And um, again, it comes back to... And by the way, protests are allowed in China. They do occur. Um, in Hong Kong, for example, which we could talk about soon, um, in Hong Kong, protests are allowed in Hong Kong. The one thing the Chinese government doesn't allow is protests against the government. You can talk about a local official who is corrupt. You can talk about somebody putting a new road in that's going to disrupt your house. You can protest about that, but you can't protest and say Xi Jinping has got to Why go. can't you protest about the government? Surely that is, if anything, that's one of the, fu the fundamental pillar of any sort of... Uh, society or democracy is the ability to criticize the leader and to second guess them, if, if you will. Why isn't that allowed? You use the phrase correctly. That is the pillar of fundamental democracy. Yeah. Um, and democracy isn't important in China. What's important is to be able to feed people and to get people prosperous and to have the country grow and have the country resume its worldwide status, etc., etc. Democracy, the, the freedom of speech is not a Again, I'm obviously generalizing because there are people who think differently, um, but freedom of speech is not the priority. It's eating is the yeah. priority and earning money. What can UK leaders uh, learn from Chinese leaders and vice versa? It's a very interesting question, this, because again, there is a limit to what I each can learn from the other simply because the culture is so different and there are so many different norms. Um, I, I would say, uh, and this is one is one is quite interesting having a prime minister who is of Asian extraction because his culture will inevitably be different from somebody who grew up or was brought up in, in the UK. Uh, the, there's one word I would use, discipline. And the difference between the Chinese government, the Chinese society and Western governments and Western society is different, uh, is discipline. And if you don't have discipline, 
according to the, that culture, then nothing's going to work properly. And if one were a pessimist, one could say that's exactly what's happening in the West at the moment. The world is falling apart. America is falling apart. Britain is falling apart. The, the, the European um, democracies are falling apart. I think everybody agrees that something has to be done about democracy because it isn't working. Why is it not working? Because there's no discipline, because people aren't managing it right. There are technical structures that are wrong. Can it be fixed? Of course it can be fixed. But um, will turkeys vote for Christmas? Um, yeah. Probably not. So that was something that Sunak mentioned when he became prime minister. He said he wanted to bring back professionalism, integrity and yep. accountability. Yep. Obviously, since his, uh, his leadership started, we haven't really seen that to the extent that perhaps could, uh, could have been promised. Well, this makes a really interesting point too, exactly. And that defines a similarity, actually, between the Western governments and the Chinese government. The fact of the matter is, you have literally hundreds of people involved in government. You've got the civil servants, you've got the ministers, you've got the public opinion, you've got the press. So anybody that really, really wants to carry out an agenda is going to have to get all those people. Xi Jinping is exactly the same. He has a whole raft of important people underneath him, uh, government officials, ministers, Communist Party chiefs. There's probably, I don't know, 20 or 30 really important people. Each of those people, like everywhere else, has different ideas. You've got hawks and doves. You've got people that want to do this. You've got people that want to do that. You've got people saying, no, we can't do this. Let's do that. Let's liberate Baba. Um, so Sunak is just one person. And um, we hear him quoted. We read him quoted. Uh, he's got ideas. He leads all sorts of people. But in the end, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're CEO of IBM, you can't do what you want because you've got people. That was the thing. Sunak was described in a recent Byline Times article as an authoritarian with no authority. If you look at the legislation that's been brought in, the anti-protest legislation, uh, which was meant to deal with Just Stop Oil protesters, and yet we've seen in the last mm -hmm. week Just Stop Oil have still been protesting. Yeah. Uh, the anti-strike legislation, which is currently going through, uh, uh, I think, the Lords at the moment, yeah. um, which is essentially to provide minimal service. But actually, when you look at um, our public services over the last 13 years, they've been operating on minimal service. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yep. um, so it's interesting that you mentioned the, the Communist Party. Now, one of the big criticisms of communism is that it doesn't work. It's great on paper. You know, it, it sounds like a good idea, but in practice, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Has it worked in China? Yes, 100%. And now, this is where you get into difficulties. I don't think democracy works either, uh, frankly. Uh, it's like the Winston Churchill quote. <laughs> it's what he says, uh, yeah. democracy is, I'm paraphrasing, democracy is crap, but the thing is when you look at all the other options, you know, they're not as good, that good either. And, and that's based upon ideas and spirits, and therefore having free ideas is better than not having free ideas. Um, China is communist to the extent that they believe in the welfare of people. In other words, the labouring classes are the people on whom the country should spend the most time and effort. To, 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 to keep satisfied because the labouring classes are what produces the wealth for everybody and I think there are probably many good socialists today that would entirely agree with that in the UK and everywhere else that's what China does and you can see the evidence you know, it is ex I, mean, I come back to this point about lifting people out of poverty I cannot think of any country in the world that could as quickly lift as many people out of poverty that was done by the communists because they feel that they should, but also because it's the right thing to do, because it makes everybody prosperous if you do that. I think if we pay a little bit more attention to central control and um, enabling people to 
work at their best whatever it is they have to do perhaps using a little bit of a strong arm every now and again um, I, I think we'd find that um, democratic countries are working a lot better as well let's look at that strong arm how would you uh use that in the UK. Yeah, that, that's where it gets terribly difficult because we're not used to it. We haven't got the culture of it. Uh, the nearest we ever got to culture was during war times when there was an emergency and everybody had to do what they were told and they gave up everything because of the war. Um, we've, we've had 70 years of peace and tranquility and we've got, sort of kind of got out of the way of, of doing things with community, doing things because we're told to. We don't like being told to do things. Chinese people do. I coach young Chinese graduates and one of the things they have the most difficulty with is the freedom of the university system. Nobody tells them what to study or how to study. Nobody tells them what the answer is. It's very, very difficult. So it's interesting you mentioned students because in the news recently, the government have been talking about uh, cutting uh, uh, student visas because uh, the argument that basically they're coming over and then they're bringing their families over as well. When actually the uh, the, infant, the, the evidence shows that students are coming over here, doing their degrees, and then staying here in the UK, some of them stay in the UK, or they go back to their respective countries with the knowledge that they've gained from the UK. Yep. International students are so integral to universities in terms of funding and also the local economy. Yep. Could we talk a bit about that? Yes, and the, sure. the, um, What you've kind of learned with that sort of experience? Yes, I mean, I think there are two things here. The positive is, that there are still so many international students that want to come and study in England. I mean, they want to come and study in Australia and Canada and America too. Um, but America, um, England has some a very, very special place in people's hearts. And this is particularly true of China. Despite all the nasty things that are being said politically between the two countries, students actually still want to come here. And they want to come here to learn some of the things that the British do, some of the British values. That is perfectly true. So they admire aspects of Britain. And what British values are those uh, um, that they are attracted to? Particularly thinking for themselves. They, they like the sort of self-starting, taking initiative. They want to learn how to do that because their society is not that way. Their grandfathers and fathers tell them what to do. They tell them what to think. They tell them what course to study. The government tells them what job to do. Um, now, that's very comforting and reassuring, but it's quite nice to learn another way of doing it. So that's one of the reasons they come here. How damaging do you think this uh, this proposed government policy is going to be to our economy? Yeah, I think it would be... A, a, to say an absolute disaster is overstretching it. They are students. I don't know what section, how much of the economy they generate, but e even if it's 5%, which I doubt, um, uh, you know, the damage to the economy is not going to be that great. What is going to be great is the cultural influence they, they, they exert and the fact that you have so many people from so many different countries learning about England, they're going to be the ambassadors to take England to other places. So it's not just what they do in England, it's what they do overseas that counts as well. And it, I, I think it's incredibly important. It's estimated on average that international students in the 2021 to 2022 cohort made a £58 million net economic contribution to the UK economy per constituency. So that is equivalent to £560 per member of the resident population. I can't give you a feeling for how much that is as a percentage of the economy as a whole, but it doesn't sound an awful lot. No. And in, in the US, for example, um, international students contributed $45 billion, uh, $45 billion in 2018. That's, but that's 2018, so... Yeah. I mean, the fact is, it's not an economic argument, yeah. to my point of view. Of course, it, if you're a university lecturer, yeah. it surely is. Um, but it's not an economic argument. It's, it's, it's um, an intellectual, social, um, geopolitical answer.
Do you think because uh, sort of post Brexit, for example, the UK is kind of finding its feet again in this sort of new world that they've created for themselves, and sort of the big thing that Johnson put out was like global Britain. Mm. This sort of policy of uh, sort of deterring um, students from international students from coming to the UK—it's hardly the uh, no. the global Britain that was promised. Would you no, say it isn't? And I, uh, you know, I have very mixed views about this. I I, I did vote Leave. I voted Leave because of um, uh, the, the bureaucracy of the EU rather than because of its uh, policies. Uh, it seemed to me be an unnecessary step in, in taking us forward. Unfortunately, I think so far, UK has made a complete mess of it um, for, for different reasons. And so therefore, yes, but we are not the global Britain. And I think maybe it's time we got used to the idea. You know, yeah. the, the empire stopped just before I was born. So <laughs> literally only 80 years ago. <laughs> so um, I, I think it's time we got used to that. We're not a global player anymore. And we might just as well accept that and get on and do our own thing and be specialists. I guess well. that's the thing. It's kind of like we're kind of nostalgia merchants in this country. Uh, uh, exactly. It's, uh, you know, people are still banging on about 1966. Um, the, the, that's the same with immigration, by the way. I'm a big supporter of immigration. And now the problem with immigration is if it comes in too quickly, you haven't got the resources to cope with people. But the reality is everywhere, England particularly, survives on immigration. You think of the history of England, everything has come from immigrants. So for goodness sake, the people that are coming in now are absolutely necessary. Now, how we look after them, how we pay for them, where we house them, how we feed them, that's another problem. That's logistics because they're coming so fast. But to say we don't want foreigners in our country is absurd. Foreigners have brought some of the best benefits. It does feel like the arguments against immigration are ideological rather than sort of economical or practical economic and practical i can understand so i just wanted to talk about this kate we mentioned briefly about sinophobic hate crime um now uh, yesterday um it was revealed that neil coyle uh, the labor mp for bermondsey and southwark uh, has been given the labor whip back um following uh, racist remarks he made to british chinese journalist henry dyer for context for those of you who don't know what um what was said uh, he told uh, Dyer that he looked like he'd been giving money to Barry Gardner, which was referencing a case um, where Barry Gardner received large sums of money from a woman rumoured to be a Chinese spy um, and referred to China as Fu Manchu. He's now been, he had the whip suspended and a year and a bit later, he's been readmitted back into the party. What does that, considering the last three years uh, to do with COVID and even going back further, um, UK, uh, Chinese relations, what message does that send to uh, sort of Chinese people, actually Southeast Asian people in general? Mm. Um, what message does that send? Yeah, it's a good question, Harry. And I've got, I've got two separate answers. Um, one is the obvious one that it says that Britain, Britain is still racist and we don't care about racism. That's sort of kind of what I think you're expecting me to say. <laughs> <laughs> However, there, there is another view which says, look, in the grand scheme of things, this is very trivial. It's a political sort of hoo-ha in England, and England pays more attention to it than anybody else. Almost any Asian, almost any Chinese will say, look, I've had far worse said to me. You know, in the grand scheme of things, it's really not important. So I think there are two ways of looking at it. I think it is perfectly correct to say that it's appalling and it shouldn't have happened. Whether the guy gets reinstated or not, it was clearly drunkenness, so if he's no longer an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. All sorts of things you can say to defend it. But to be honest... I think it's quite trivial. But also, I mean, I guess from a um, from a, uh, under current polling, it looks like Labour will be will form our next government. Yes. And in terms of UK Chinese relations, yes. What kind of message does that send? Is that not going to have an impact on on uh, on any future? You, you know, you know what I think. If if we take 
the individual out of this and say individual Chinese people may or may not feel hurt, um, the grand scheme of things in China is not going to change very much with Labour or Conservatives. It's like the American presidents. It's not going to change very much. Um, and there is the difference between the official position, which is we've got to stop China, we've got to hold them back, um, to the unofficial position is, hey, guys, we actually need it. How can we manage it best? So if you take America, for example, nobody likes being told they're no longer top dog, and China very is not very far away from being top dog. Of course they're going to fight back. Of course they're going to say, we've got to do something. They're going to use every weapon. Chinese are doing the same thing too. It's interesting that you mention uh, the US because sort of US-Chinese relations have kind of really been on edge. If you look at uh, sort of the neorealist John, Me uh, John Mearsheimer yep. and what he yep. talks about this idea, it's inevitable that because the uh, so US the, and China the, are competing trap, yeah, are, are competing economically and also um, well, basically on an economic basis, it's inevitable that they will go to war. Mm. Worst case scenario, they go to war. Who's winning? <laughs> Nobody. Um, I'm a pacifist. Um, I, I can see absolutely no point whatsoever in anybody going to war with anybody because everybody loses in a war. There is no such thing as a victor in a war. Um, so I think uh, the idea of China and America or anybody else, frankly, going to war is appalling. The people who will cause the war will be the United States, not China. Uh, China has never... Um, in its history, invaded a another country. Uh, okay, you could talk about Tibet and things like that. That was not an invasion. This was what they regarded as being part of Chinese territories, etc. Nobody got killed in that invasion, for example. So uh, the people that are going to start the war are the aggressors in this world, which have classically always been the Americans. So I, 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 at, the at the moment, my understanding is that America still has the better weapons, whether they have the better military what you call morale yeah. is, is another matter. America has the better weapons, but Chinese catch, catching up fast. I think it's appalling, the whole thing. I think even talking about it is, makes me feel ill, quite frankly. So you mentioned that you're a pacifist and you're also in the military. Some people might see that as a bit of an oxymoron. Yeah. I, I, in my book, um, I, I do write about this. Um, I had to do national service because it was the law in the country, talking of discipline. I had no choice. Um, but I can remember saying to my father, look, I don't want to do this. I want to be a pacifist and, and opt out. And he said to me, son, look, supposing you had a soldier coming up the garden path intent on killing you and raping your mother, what would you do then? And I said, kind of sort of glibly and flippantly, well, I grab a hand, I run like hell, and I go and hide somewhere to keep out of the way. And I thought at the time that that was a bit of a silly answer, but that is probably exactly what I would do. So I had no choice but to go into the military. Fortunately, I didn't have to do any fighting. But that's the same answer I would give today. I, there is absolutely no justification whatsoever for anybody killing anybody else. And one of the things I often ask people, what's the difference between the, um, the assassin, if you like, in America that goes in with a machine gun and mows down 500 people in a supermarket and an assassin with a machine gun on the battlefield that goes and mows down 500 of the enemy? Hey, it's people mowing people down. I can't see any justification for that whatsoever. Brian. Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a really good discussion. Is there anything that you would like to promote before you before you go? Uh, well, yes, the two things. Thank you very much for asking me. First of all, I would like people to read my blog, The Reasonable Man. I put a lot of my views in there. 
I have incorporated that, plus some of my own personal history in the book, um, which I'm in the process of uh, getting published shortly. So obviously I'd like to promote the book, but that's not quite ready yet. So for the reasonable man, I'd like people to read the blog. They'll see a lot of these. Sort we'll of things. put a link to it in the, in the description. Thank we'll get you. all that sorted. Um, and to all of you uh, listening and watching, thank you so much. Um, and I hope you've really enjoyed hearing this conversation. Please join us uh, next week for the next episode. Thank you.